Okay, you ready? You can hear me okay? Great, we're on? Perfect. Awesome. Let's go. I'm Peter Little, lead pastor at Christ Pacific Church in Huntington Beach, California. We're cultivating a community of faith, hope, and love that follows Jesus into the world. And you're listening to our Sunday Sermons podcast. To learn more about us or to subscribe to this podcast, visit us at cpchb.org. Thanks for listening. The Biggest Little Farm, have you seen that film yet? I've been talking about that film for the last couple of weeks. I've been promoting it, saying it's a great film. You should go watch it. I'm not getting paid by them, by the way, to promote that film. I just think it's a great film. It tells the story of John and Molly Chester's dirt farming project that turned into Apricot Lane Farms. And Apricot Lane Farms, which is this 214 acres of dirt that the Chester has transformed into a flourishing and fruitful ecosystem, Apricot Lane Farms, I think, sings of God's glory. I think it sings of God's beauty and God's design and therefore God's glory. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah says it so vividly. Isaiah 55, 12, the mountains and the hills... Before you shall, sorry, let me start over. So excited about this. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Apricot Lane Farms is clapping its hands to the living God. Listen to how the psalmist says this so poetically. This is Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens are telling the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Don't forget to look up. Eugene Peterson says it this way, God's glory is on tour in the skies. I think God's glory is on tour at Apricot Lane Farms. Again, I promise you they're not paying me to tell you that. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, we read that there was a point in history, the very beginning of history, there was a point when no plant in the field raised up and no herb from the garden sprung up because the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain and because there was no one to till the ground. So God solves this problem. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man he had created and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. You see, in the Garden of Eden, this picture of God's good creation in all of its glory, all of its magnificence, all of its beauty, plants and herbs don't crop up unless someone tills the ground. God's farm requires farmers. God's farm doesn't work unless there are farmers, and this is the way that God has designed things. And Adam is the very first dirt farmer. God put him in the garden to till it and to work it. Dirt farming is baked into our identity. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. There's a wordplay here that's hidden from us in English. That Hebrew word for man is the word, you could probably guess, Adam. Sounds like Adam, doesn't it? Hmm. Adam. The Hebrew word for ground or dirt is Adama. 
So the Lord God formed the Adam from the Adama. We are literally, I mean, if we were to like literally translate the Hebrew here, we are of the earth. We are earthlings. That is who we are. That is our identity. So we are inherently earth people, earthlings, dirt farmers. It's kind of baked into our identity the way that God created us. And the flourishing of the Garden of Eden depends in part by us faithfully cultivating the soil. You see, God creates. We can't do that. We don't get to create something out of nothing. God creates and we cultivate. And the result is a flourishing farm, a flourishing garden, a flourishing ecosystem, a flourishing creation. So I've been talking about dirt farming as kind of an analogy for what it looks like for us to be faithful stewards of what God has given us. God doesn't necessarily give us dirt like he gave John and Molly Chester 214 acres of dirt to literally cultivate. But what he does give us, what he gives all of us is time and talent and treasure. That's the soil, so to speak, that God has given us to cultivate, to partner with him in cultivating a flourishing ecosystem, a flourishing and fruitful life. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about time. We considered what it looks like to be faithful stewards of the time God has given us, to faithfully cultivate the time. Last week, we considered talents. God has given all of us talents or skills or, or gifts, and we call them gifts because God has given them to us. And what does it look like for us to faithfully steward the gifts that God has given, the skills that God has given, the spiritual gifts that God has given. And today we're going to consider what it looks like to be faithful stewards of the treasures, the treasure that God has given us. And when I use that word treasure, I'm referring to all of our financial and material resources. So the stuff that we have, the treasure that we have, what does Scripture tell us about how we are invited to cultivate faithfully the stuff that God has given us so that we might cultivate with him a flourishing and fruitful life for God's glory. I want us to consider a biblical perspective of cultivating our treasure, and I want us to look through this window of 1 Chronicles 29. And in that episode that Tensi read for us, King David and the people of Israel, they are celebrating because they have just offered a bunch of free will offerings, a bunch of their treasures for the building of God's temple in Jerusalem. And they're super stoked about it. They're all fired up and excited about the privilege they have of participating in this project that God has got them doing. And they are just filled with joy. You can feel the joy in the text if you read it closely. They're excited. And I want to look through this text and pull out some words from it as we consider what it might look like for us to be faithful stewards with the treasures God has given us. What does that look like? 
So first of all, the Israelites are invited to participate with what God is doing. They're invited to participate by offering up the resources that God has given them for the building of the temple. In the same way that Adam and Eve are invited to participate with God to cultivate the soil in order to build a flourishing world. So to you and I, we're invited to steward our financial resources that we might participate with God in this great restoration project. And when we do this, when we participate with God, we discover the privilege and the pleasure and the purpose for which God calls us to be good stewards. And friends, this morning there's going to be a lot of P's in this sermon. A lot of P's. At least four. I'm going to give you a whole bunch of extra bonus P's here. So if you are paying attention, you'll notice a bunch of P's. And I tried to have this not be an alliteration, but I'm super sorry. It just comes to me. It just, and once it comes out, I can't make the peas go away. They're all there screaming at me. And so I'm here to offer up some peas in reflection on First Chronicles 29. So here you go. You ready? Participate. That's the first one. We already covered that. Privilege, pleasure, and purpose. Those are the four peas we're going to look at. First of all, this idea of participating with God. When we cultivate what God has given us, we get to participate with what God is doing. We get to partner with God in the expansion of God's kingdom of peace. And there's two bonus P's for you right there. Partner and the kingdom of peace. Told you there's going to be some bonuses. We get to participate by partnering with God. God chose us. This is incredible. God wants us. He wants us to be on his team. He looks at us and chooses us. This is not like the playground in middle school when you're like, oh, please, please, pick me, pick me, pick me. God chooses us right away because he wants us to participate in his project. And what a privilege. That's the second P. What a privilege it is that we get to participate with God. And you get this deep sense of privilege from King David and from the Israelites in 1 Chronicles 29. First of all, we see that the offerings they give, they're free will offerings. They're, they're given freely by the people. They're not given out of a sense of obligation. They choose in freedom to give because they see the privilege it is to participate. Look at verse 14. King David says, Who am I and what is my people that we should be able to make a free will offering? Who am I? I think that this sense of privilege comes from this deep sense that all they have actually belongs to the Lord. Verse 16 says, Our Lord, our, O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for the building of your house, for your holy name, it all comes from your hand anyway. It all belongs to you anyway. David has this keen sense that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's what Psalm 50 tells us. In other words, it's, it's just all his. And the fact that they have something to offer is already evidence of God's faithfulness. They have this keen sense of privilege that they have received so much already, and so they have the opportunity to offer it to the living God. God's gracious provision for them. There's another P, bonus P, provision. 
God's gracious provision for them. They have the privilege of stewarding a portion of God's treasure. What if you and I really saw that all we have belongs to the Lord? What if you looked at your bank account or you looked at your retirement portfolio or you looked at the property you own and you had this deep sense that God owns all of this? that it all belongs to the living God, how would that change your perspective? How would that change your posture towards the stuff that he has given you? I think it might begin at least with this. What a privilege that God has given me all of this to use for a while. What a privilege that God has provided all of this to me to use for a while. For his glory. Pleasure is the third P. So we got participate, privilege, pleasure. Verse 22, we read that all who had given, uh, we read that all who had given a free will offering ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great joy. They had a party. And with great joy, they celebrated because they had this sense of pleasure that what they were doing was actually a pleasure it was a joy for them and because they counted it a privilege to participate in God's project they took pleasure in it i think the primary reason that they took pleasure in doing this is they had a keen sense that god actually was pleased with them that God took pleasure in them. Listen to verse 17. I know, my God, that you search the heart and you take pleasure in uprightness. In uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all of these things. God, you take pleasure in uprightness. The people had this deep sense that God was pleased with them. They had this deep sense that they were, that they belonged with God that they experienced unconditional love from this living God, that they didn't have to give in order to please God. God was already pleased, and so they were pleased to give. Pleased and filled with joy. And I think it's probably helpful to differentiate between joy and happiness. Because joy and happiness, they might look similar on the outside, but they are fundamentally and qualitatively different things. Happiness is based on what's happening, right? That's why it's called happiness. When good things happen, you might feel happy. When bad things happen, you might not feel happy or at least less happy. So happiness is circumstantial. Right, so when, uh, when the Seahawks quarterback, Russ Wilson, was cooking at the beginning of the season and the Seahawks started out 5-0, and I was happy. It was glorious. It was wonderful. I was so happy. Well, guess what happened to my happiness as the season went on, right? But joy is qualitatively different. Joy comes from this deep knowledge that God takes pleasure in me. That God is pleased with you. That when God thinks of you in his mind's eye, when God looks at you, he is pleased. And that is where a deep sense of joy 
comes from, that I am unconditionally loved, that I belong with the Lord, that I'm secure in him. Speaking of security, listen to this quote from Tim Keller. Tim Keller is the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York. It's where I first worshiped as a brand new Christian. He wrote this about a joy-filled giver. He said, a Christian should smile as they give. They should want to give. We should see giving like a roller coaster ride. It feels adventurous. It feels risky, but it's actually really safe. We think we're going to plummet, but God holds on to us tightly. Anything that much fun becomes contagious. And many Christians experience this thrill. Once they, take, once they make giving a priority, it becomes more and more joyful. Giving to God's kingdom, laying down our earthly treasures at his feet has no end. It's a roller coaster ride through life, an adventure. And yet it is an adventure that is safe within the loving arms of the almighty God. And only the gospel of new life in Christ can sustain this lifelong experience. To paraphrase G.K. Chesterton, every person wants two things in life, adventure and security. And only in Christianity do you get both. The Israelites experienced great pleasure in giving because they knew God's great pleasure in them. And stewarding our treasure well can be a pleasure from this perspective. The fourth and final P is purpose. The purpose of the temple that the Israelites would later build was to bring honor and fame to the name of the Lord. The purpose of the free will offering that the Israelites gave was to bring honor and fame to the name of the Lord. The purpose of the garden which Adam and Eve tilled was to bring honor and fame to the name of the Lord. And the purpose for our stewardship with our time and our talents and our treasure is to bring honor and fame to the name of the Lord. It's all about his honor and fame. It's all about God's glory. So the question before us about how we steward our finances, our resources, is this. To what degree does this bring honor and fame to the name of the Lord? The question before us is how can I use what God has given me to bring honor and fame to the name of the Lord. And this is a question that addresses all of our treasure. This is a question that addresses all of who we are, not just 10% of our treasure, not just 10% of our talent, not just 10% of our time, but 100% of it. Which is why we have sung this song already this morning, Lord, we surrender all. We surrender all that you have given to you for the sake of the fame of your name, for your glory. We surrender all. So how we spend our money, all 100% of it, how we spend the money that we have reflects our priorities and it reflects the posture of our hearts. And that's two more bonus Ps. You're welcome. Priorities and posture. Right? It reflects what our priorities are. You know, 
Look at your checkbook. Does anyone even have a checkbook anymore? That's funny. Look at your bank account and you can see what your priorities are. You can get a sense of the posture of your heart. So a biblical perspective on tending our treasures faithfully can be summed up with a whole bunch of Ps. It's all about participating with God, partnering with him in this grand project called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of peace. It's about being privileged to participate with God because of this deep sense of God's pleasure with us. And this deep sense that God has actually provided all of this in the first place. It's about doing this with great pleasure because of God's pleasure in us. And it's all for the purpose of God's glory. For bringing fame to his name as we prioritize our spending and as we adopt a generous posture towards God and towards one another. It's a lot of P's. I know, I hope you wrote some of those down. But if you can remember a couple of those P's, I think it will be helpful to you. What does it mean to steward our treasure? Something about participating, something about partnering, something about God's provision, something about enjoying God's pleasure. Hebrews 12.2 says this, that for the sake of the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. For the sake of the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What was the joy set before him for which he endured the cross? The question really is, who is the joy set before him? And the answer to that question is you. For the sake of the joy God has in you, Jesus endured the cross. You are his joy. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He says, Though Jesus was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, you might become rich. For the sake of the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He became poor so that we might become rich rich in the fullest sense of that word. So friends, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped onto or held onto for his own benefit or exploited for himself, but rather he emptied himself. He humbled himself. And became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, all for the sake of the joy that was set before him. And you and I are that joy. You and I are the joy set before him for which he was pleased to endure the cross. For God takes great pleasure in you. Friends, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you take such pleasure in us. Would you help us to live into and live out of that place of security that we belong in you and with you? 
that all we have belongs to you. And we have this great privilege of participating in your restoration project. Thank you, Jesus, for that privilege. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining our Christ Pacific Sunday Sermon Podcast. To hear more of our sermons, or to subscribe, or to learn how you can be engaged with what we're up to in Huntington Beach, please visit us at cpc.com.